what I found is I, I need to distill out of all of the details, which are the important directional structural pieces, the kind of principles of what we're trying to build that I really care about. everybody welcome back to the clearview podcast today i'm speaking with ben waitley he's the chief product officer of memorize how are you doing today ben very good thanks um uh, great to be talking yeah you too so tell me a little bit about memorize what are you guys doing over there so memorize we're um, helping people learn languages we've got about 50 million users we a couple of years about one google's app of the year first education app to win it first european app as well um, and yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about the mission. Yeah. So, so one of the, the bullet points that we had to kind of dive into, uh, today on our, on our talk was like how, how tech can change the way we learn and live. And so, so language learning, people have been using tech to change the way that we learn languages for a long time, all the way back from, I don't know, like Rosetta Stone, Duolingo. What is it that Memorize is doing differently? Right. Well, it's actually, if you, if you look at the way that, we have gone about learning languages just in the history of humanity. The traditional way to learn languages is to live near somebody who speaks a different language and to want to trade with them or talk to them or make love to them. Mm -hmm. And then you pretty soon work out how to speak their language. And then there was a kind of unfortunate period um, in the, the kind of early modern era where people started, people wrote textbooks for teaching Latin, um, but the original textbooks for teaching Latin were to teach you to be a really good Latin translator once you already spoke hmm. Latin. It's kind of assumed that you spoke Latin because you, you, you know, that's what you chatted in if you were an educated person back then. And then they, they created textbooks in order to help you be a better translator of, of um, prose. And then when Latin died out as a spoken language, we only had these textbooks left. And then people started teaching from textbooks. And it was a completely, it's an anathema to the way that human mind actually works. The way that you, in fact, the only way that you can develop an ability in a foreign language is by processing target language input at just above the level that you currently understand. So you have to be guessing slightly at what it means. Mm -hmm. And learning grammar structures, what the rules are, learning the translations of individual words these things in themselves will never get you to the point of actually speaking a language. And in a way, there was this, um, uh, over that period of, of transition um, in the kind of early modern era, there was this shift of this construction of an idea of a language or something external to you that you learn. And that you, by learning the language, then you can go and do stuff in Spain or you know, Berlin. Um, but that's kind of like teaching people the rules of Monopoly, but never letting them actually play a game of Monopoly right. and examining them on whether they know all the rules of Monopoly. And I don't know if you've ever tried to read the book. I never actually now read the rules of board games because I know that I'm not going to understand them. And the only way to mm -hmm. do it is you just start playing and you gradually work it out. So you start playing and get a feel for it. It's just this, that is how humans learn things. And that is how we're approaching language learning as well. It's kind of the traditional way of learning languages, but it's not the more recently traditional way of um, teaching languages in order to help you pass exams. And so that's kind of to, to your point, the way the 
first apps, the first software went about trying to teach languages um, it was based in the way that we teach languages in schools. And uh, I don't know what your experience was like of learning languages at schools, but mine was basically an abject failure. Oh, mine too. Yeah, my experience learning languages in, in schools was an abject failure. And then I went to Mexico on a trip and I was like, wow, I want to move to Mexico. So then suddenly I wanted to learn Spanish, even though I'd taken it for years in high school and like middle and high school, I didn't learn anything. And then once I wanted it, then I started listening to music. Then you can do it. And yeah, then you can do it. And, and, and in fact, it, it's the, even deeper than like on one sense, you want to do it. And so you do it. But in fact, the, uh, the sort of pedagogical approach, you pick up grammatical structures and your ability to use grammatical structures in the order in which they, they can convey meaning for you. So as an example for this, when people learn English in like lesson one, they're taught in the present tense, you put an S on the third person. So I eat, he eats. Always taught right at the start. Mm -hmm. English learners don't do that until they're really sort of upper intermediate. They're pretty damn good at English before they start doing that. Because it doesn't matter. No one cares. Yeah, it just doesn't matter at all. If I say um, the boy, he eat the chocolate, no one's confused about what's going on. And it is when you, so when you actually have meaning to transfer and you care about communicating with someone, that is the, it, that is when you learn, but it's the only time you learn, not just because there's a sort of motivational aspect, but because actually that's how language learning works, that you only, your brain will only do what it has to do in order to get its meaning understood. And so, yeah, when you want to be in Mexico and you want to understand what the songs are saying, when you want to order yourself a beer, that is when you learn how to order yourself a beer. And actually yeah. that segues into uh, just a uh, Sorry, I'm just talking a lot. I don't know what the podcast um, protocol is, is on this, but no, this if you, one of, one of the big issues that we have as an app is that if you're in your bar in Tijuana and you want a beer, you have to work out how to order a beer. And then your reward is you get a beer. Whereas if you're on a mobile app, and we're trying to get you to get good at ordering beers. We can get you to say, una cerveza, por favor. But all we can give you is a green tick, which is just a whole lot less rewarding than a beer. Hmm. And it's just, okay. this is part of the um, kind of crux of the problem for a mobile app uh, as a way of learning languages, is that we need to find totally different um, motivational triggers. And we need to understand what the motivations are when you're in that perfect language acquisition environment, which is living in a country where the language is spoken and trying to live your life and trying to get stuff done. That's the perfect environment. Mm -hmm. What are the motivations there? And what can we reproduce on your phone? And what, what can we not? And by understanding those levers, we can actually create, like it's incredibly rich what we can do on a, on a mobile phone. You know, we, in terms of video now, in terms of actually connecting you live with people, we've got a huge range of options, but we've got to understand what it is that is going to motivate you to engage in those conversations, to to try and understand those videos and so on. And that's kind of the art of what we're. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think like what what you're pointing to is you know the the traditional learning of languages, even the way that they have been built into apps, is largely intellectual. And, you know, we like language isn't just an intellectual thing. We actually do it with our with our body. Like we develop a muscle memory for the speech patterns we're using 
and then we pick up body language responses and back channeling from the people we're speaking with to constantly gauge how well they're understanding what we're saying or what the, what we think they're right, so, understanding so an analogy, of what we're saying. An, an analogy I use for this is like um, is I'm playing the jazz piano where you know, there are a few few points in there that um, first of all you say it's a kind of intellectualized activity and that is that's absolutely right. Um, the way that we tend to think of it is a very kind of left brain activity of we think of language like a puzzle. I always taught Latin at school and it literally was like a puzzle. I'd never heard it spoken out loud. It was just a puzzle. I had to like work the out the order of the words and then I had to go and look up the declension masculine nouns and you know find the right ending for that case and all that. It was just done like a puzzle. And that's one part of the way that language works. But then there's the the other side, which is, and, and when you look at the um, hemispatial specialization in language processing, there is one part that is like the direct literal meaning of words and the word order that is very much left hemisphere processed. But then you've got the right hemisphere processes, which is a, a lot more about contextual meaning, a lot more about um, emotional salience, about the kind of feel of the language. And these are things that actually you can't really understand the language without having both of these things together. And But we teach the kind of the left brain side of it. And then we leave the right brain side of it to when you go out and actually exist in the world and try and tie that intellectual ability back to your real life. And it's one like, I got this great analogy. I was explaining this to a jazz pianist and he, he explained to me that in, in jazz piano, I'm terrible at piano, but this I'm just relaying what he explained to me because it was a great analogy. They said you, the right hand, which is governed by the left brain, plays the melody. And that's like the notes in the right order and it's getting the right notes. And that's the kind of what people think of as, as the tune of what's playing. But if you just play that, that's that's not music. You need to add the left hand to to make it music. And that's where the emotional is. That's the context for it. And that's all of those parts. And and I think that there's a really strong um, analogy in the way that we with the way that we produce and process music and the way that we produce and process language. And to like distill it down, I think that recent traditional school and uh, um, other courses for teaching languages teach you the right hand. They teach you the melody, but they don't teach you the left hand and to give it the context mm -hmm. and we need to bring both those things together yeah that's a fascinating metaphor i've never heard that before the right hand playing the melody connected to the left brain i mean like yeah like like language um you know broca's area is sort of considered to be a language area of your brain and it's in the left left hemisphere but a lot of your associative mapping like your semantic web of how yeah. the world fits together and when you're walking through a bar and your brain is processing people and objects and beers and labels and flavors. It's doing that by connecting to all the different parts of your brain and your body that are processing those sensory experiences. And they're all a part of what you're ultimately going to want and then what you're going to say. Right. It, absolutely. And when, and when you think of the just the experience of creating a sentence, like as, as I was saying, the way that I learn Latin and the way that a lot of people try and teach languages through translating sentence by sentence, saying, how do you say this in the language? And that kind of practices this muscle of having a whole um, concept or set of ideas that you want to convey and then trying to convey them at once. 
But actually, the experience of speaking is that you, you just don't know how the sentence is going to end. Mm-hmm. You know, you start speaking, and it, it, it's a much more procedural memory of these are chunks that could come next, given what you've said already, and you've got that feeling of what you want to express, and so you're going to kind of lay those rails in front of you. And sometimes you talk yourself into a dead end. You're like, well, hold on, that sentence ain't going to work. I've got to slightly back up and go down a different path. And if all you practice is translating a sentence into another language, you're not practicing that experience of feeling that you want to express something and trying to lay the track in front of you. And that is actually the necessary and sufficient skill that you need to have. Mm-hmm. And, it, and there's just so many areas in, in language teaching where we traditionally get lost in this loop where we want to know whether the student is able to do something. So we set them a test and then we teach them to be able to pass that test. But it, all of it misses this slightly ephemeral, slightly hard to grasp concept that what people actually want to do is be able to feel that they want to express something and then pour out words that they don't know quite where those words are going to go, but they go roughly in the right direction and then they and, th- and then they end up in the right place. Right. And those are just very different skills. And working out how to train people just to do that skill and not to do all the things that help them pass the grammar test, not to help them do things that help them, do, you know, not to help them translate individual sentences and so on. That, that's what we're kind of focused on and just making that process as efficient as possible. Right. Yeah. And the more emotionally engaged you are in the moment, the more, like the more those words have to kind of flow from that place, which is why even in your own language, you can become stupefied if you're, you know, in the presence of a romantic interest and you're just, you know, woo. Yes. <laughs> Got to riff off that, that um, it is a, a kind of truism that the best way to learn a language is, by having a monoglot lover mm. and if um i was just riffing off the fact that you're saying you may be tongue-tied in your own language in in the presence of a love interest or maybe part of the fact the quality of the monoglot lover is that you're you're kind of um forging your abilities in, in the fire of a difficult situation of talking to somebody who you really care about <laughs> and right. I, I don't know whether there's much mileage in that thought yeah, no, it's it's I've I've had had that experience and it's a fascinating one. It has impacts on both the language learning and on the relationship that are just very unique as a dynamic. Right. What was what was your experience there? It sounds like there's a story. Uh, well, you know, just like a couple of experiences when I when I first moved to Mexico uh, when I was like 19 or 20 or something. Um, you know, like I met people met girls there that were that spoke only Spanish, and I spoke brand new Spanish, um, trying to get to know them, you know, that, that was a process, uh, similar in Turkey had a couple of experiences there. Um, wow. Using Google translate and trying to speak very, very basic Turkish <laughs> that I, I studied for a little while. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so I have a little bit of experience with it, but I've never like dated a long-term partner that was, uh, monoglot in another language. And I know some people who have, and it's fascinating. Um, I, I had an experience when, when we, I was living in China. My daughter, one of my daughters spoke Chinese before English, and hmm. the other one gradually picked up Chinese pretty quickly. Wow. And um, we, I had the very strange experience of, my, my Chinese was pretty fluent at the time. Um, it's getting a bit rusty now, but I still didn't have any of the 
the the language for talking to children and like playing with children <laughs> and mm. it was such a it was such a weird thing to find this experience where i i just i couldn't play children's games with my child i thought i was pretty fluent in chinese but that area it was just like nothing i had nothing and uh, that made it really hard to um develop that relationship with my child because i had to keep switching back to english but then you know, the younger child didn't speak english and it was just, just very peculiar like just bumping up against the edges of where you think you're competent in the language and it's like do i actually i i didn't even know a kind of polite childish way of saying to do a we yeah and so when she was asking me she's going and i was like what is she talking about and it, it took me a while to take well, she went to the loo eventually and i was like okay now i'm getting it hmm. but just these very basic things that um yeah, language learning is so context specific specific as well and when you set that in the, the context of a specific relationship that becomes the language that that you know and it's yeah you're kind of unaware because you don't keep moving outside that context of how limited your ability in the world is yeah i mean this is a whole other rabbit hole but i'm curious what it's like to grow up you know to grow up with a father that doesn't speak your language at the level of speaking to a child as you right and both and both me and my wife we're both english and so neither of us were speaking the language as well as they were which was yeah. really fascinating and a very I, I was really aware of the cultural barrier and i was aware that i just didn't know how i felt about it and it, and, and i was also aware that i had not empathized with that enough of um people of chinese ethnicity i knew in england who had um uh, whose parents have moved to england or whatever um, that I just hadn't really understood that separation mm. for the parents of the of children being brought up genuinely in another culture for who just don't have that residue of it and I just felt that happening to myself and it was quite a it's quite it was a very strange experience yeah yeah I mean I, I can understand now your personal connection to this to this project right yeah no, it, I mean actually memorized from my perspective grew out of I, I had a very um similar experience to you of learning languages at school I, I wasn't very good at it but I also I studied psychology at Oxford where I met my co-founder and uh, one of the things I noticed or just troubled me when I was studying how human the human brain learns was that it's kind of a almost a defining feature of humans that we learn languages and if you're not very good at something that's a defining feature of your species it's just it's, it's sort of hurtful to the ego and so after I left Oxford, I said, actually, I'm just going to go and see if I can learn a language if, I, if no one's trying to teach me. <laughs> if I just go do this in a traditional way, live in China and see if I can make myself understood, can I make any progress? And so I went and I, I moved to China and I moved to a place called Chichihar, which is in the far northeast corner in, in, on the sort of Siberian border. And uh, then just saw if I could, um, with minimal teaching, actually find a way to speak the language. And what I discovered was, yes, by employing memory techniques and basic, um, well, just trying to make myself understood, I could actually learn it remarkably quickly to a remarkably good level, which was where then you know, that that then led a little time later into thinking we've got to we've got to spread this understanding and we've got to reverse this extraordinary situation where people 
spend years studying languages without ever mm-hmm. actually using them. And, you know, they spend years. It's like having a school class to study the rules of chess, but no one actually plays it. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you mentioned using memory techniques, um, and the the company is called Memrise. Is there a connection to that? Because it's interesting to me that the the name of a language company doesn't seem to evoke language in the name or the concept of language, but it's yeah, more about memory. The, the, it, it's kind of about how to use your mind more effectively. And I think one of, one of the things, because Ed and I both studied memory um, as our other co-founder, and Ed, my, uh, who's kind of CEO, was also um, a memory grandmaster and got very into competitive memorization. And had he, he trained a journalist called Josh Furr to be U.S. memory champion in a year who wrote a great book called Moonwalking with Einstein about the experience. Um, and so we come from that background, but also had a bit of a chip on our shoulder about the way people think about uh, about memory. And, and people tend to have this opinion of memory as being I, I, well, through human history. We tend to use analogies for the mind that are linked to the cutting edge of our technology at the time. So it used to be clockwork. Um, uh, we used to think of the mind as this sort of clockwork thing. And now we think of it as a computer. And we have this model of how human memory works, like files that you save on the computer, and then you can mm-hmm. go and open them up, which is just not how human memory works. Right. And, it's and more of fact, an ecosystem. If I ask you to imagine a cow smoking a cigar, you don't you don't just invent that as a piece of creativity out of nothing. The the cow that you're imagining is a cow that is based on a cow that you have seen. It's a memory that is mm-hmm. stored somewhere. And the yeah, cigar likewise. And even the way you're just piecing together memories that you've got. And in a sense, memory is the gives us the building blocks that define what we can build with our imagination. Mm-hmm. But in, in the sort of popular discourse we tend to have this dichotomy of memory or creativity like which which side do you come down and we have this viewpoint that creativity and memory are inseparable and in fact memory itself and memorizing things is an act of creativity and it is the the memory world championships are kind of the imagination world championships it is how do you connect meaningless stuff to give it meaning and therefore make it memorable Mm-hmm. And so we, we we were talking a lot about this at the point of founding memorize and, and particularly in the light of uh, learning Chinese characters, memory techniques are hugely powerful, but also for the vocab learning aspect of learning a language, which is still useful and, and helpful part of it. Um, memory techniques are hugely important and understanding when, what's going to strengthen a memory effectively. These are all kind of useful things. And that was our kind of first step um, as a product. And we probably named the product slightly too much to do with the first um, product rather than the next horizon, which we already was very much in our plans, um, but we could have made it in our name too. Mm. Yeah, I understand. So I want to get back to something uh, something that we were touching on earlier, which is how is it that Memorize, like what, what does Memorize do that incorporates sort of this full holistic picture of memory learning into into an app and into a technology so that people aren't just getting a dopamine hit of a green check mark when they get something right, but they're getting something that kind of hits their whole system. 
Right. So, I mean, the, the, the kind of motivation has to be actually making progress. You know, that's that is the only true motivation in, in learning the language and green ticks will only go so far without that. So the well, as I kind of mentioned earlier, literally the only way that you can acquire an ability in a, in a foreign language is by having target language input adjust above your current level. And so on one level, if you just distill down the task that we're going after, it is to get learners to just engage in and try and understand content that is just above their current level for a couple of hundred hours and just really focus that. that that's one level what we're trying to do. But then you say, well, what are the things that govern what language is just above your current level? Well, the first thing is, if you don't know any words or phrases, there's going to be very little content. And the task of trying to interest you in that content, it's going to be pretty hard. Mm -hmm. So we can help ourselves hugely by teaching you words and phrases very quickly. And so that's where the kind of memory techniques come in. And that is where we can build up your vocab at a, at a much faster rate. So just as sort of rough numbers, learning in classes, you, people learn long term about three to four words per hour of study time, new words. If you compare that to the vocab explosion stage of early childhood, people, are, children learn 10 to 12 words a day. And on Memrise, learners over the long term learn about 15 words per hour. So it's way, way faster even than children at their fastest rate of language acquisition. Mm. And that's because we, we're using these um, memory techniques and applying them effectively. And what we, what we do then, so we teach you the words and phrases, but then we have what we call situation tests. So it's like you learn the words and phrases, but then you have to go and make sure you can understand them in the real world. And so there are kind of comprehension tasks. There is, um, uh, we call them response tasks where you get a video asking you a question and you need to speak back to it. And just things that keep pushing you slightly outside your comfort zone. So in that example of um, the responses task, rather than saying, how do you say, one beer, please, in Spanish, and you have to answer it. That's just a test. Instead, we get you a video where um, someone in the video comes up and is like, hey, que quieres? Uh, then, uh, and the, the, that, that happens in the video, and then you have to think up an answer to it. And we might give you a prompt saying in English saying, you're thirsty, maybe you feel like a beer. And then you have to think, oh, shit, okay, I've got to say that. How do I say it? Mm -hmm. And it's just finding these kinds of experiences that, Take that knowledge that you've got to use the, what we were talking about earlier, that kind of left brain under, um, knowledge about the language that you've got, how to translate the individual words and create situations where you need to engage the more right brain feeling of the context of what's going on. How do I change that into a desire to express something and so on? And so those, that's the kind of training that we're, that we're building and the experience. Um, and we're doing that in a way also, um, built on top of that system is the fact that language, when it's taught as a thing you need to learn, is taught as a syllabus. And it's like, you learn these things mm -hmm. in this order. And when you lay that, uh, the teacher, the, uh, the all-knowing teacher lays out the order in which you should learn it. But like your experience in Mexico, that, that's not the order that you'll pick things up. The order that you'll pick things up is the order that they're interesting to you. Mm -hmm. And Actually, there, there isn't very much difference in difficulty um, between the, the subjunctive and the present tense. They're, they're both just 
chunks of language that you didn't know and now you know. And if we can, um, so the way that we have structured our whole um, content system is that you can learn this in any order and you can pick up the language that is useful to what you want to do. And whatever it is that you've learned, you will get served with situations, situation tests based on everything that you've learned. Hmm. So what, if you learn a particular phrase and get tested on it, get a situation test for that phrase, the situation test you get will be different from the situation test I get because you will have learned other phrases um, that make it possible to give you a different situation test. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense now. Uh, and, and so the whole system is for the radio is not the right medium for explaining something that definitely needs a diagram. But <laughs> the, the essentially, we, we've created this content structure where it allows us to lay the rails in front of the learner based on their interests. So it's entirely a learner centric journey of what do you what are you interested in and what do you want to learn? And then we can give you what you need and whatever it is that you need, we can we can spin up these um, situation tests that give you that experience of just stretching beyond the knowledge of the language and, and give you that experience of applying it. Yeah, so your your interest basically navigates the search space of content rather than a set syllabus. Exactly. Which is it's much moving better. beyond yeah. yeah, it's moving beyond and I think this is a huge problem for edtech in general, by the way, that I think the this and it's it's a problem and it's a missed opportunity that this kind of paternalistic sense of syllabus creation and you need to learn this is only relevant to a very, very few spheres of life. Like if I'm going to see a doctor, I probably want to know that they've learned, they've covered the basic syllabus mm-hmm. and they know those things. But in most other situations, what you want is the ability to learn rather than having learned it. And, you know, when we're looking to employ people, we're not looking for someone who has has done a computer science degree in C because they're really good at programming C. We want to know that they were good at learning that because then they're going to be able to learn whatever else we need them to learn right. as they're working it out. And I think it applies to languages. It applies to you know, all realms of education. And I think it's something that EdTech has a particular opportunity to change yeah. uh, that I think it can change faster than it is. Well, I think it really does apply to everything. Like a doctor, yes, I want a doctor to have learned the syllabus of things that they are supposed to learn so that they don't miss a common thing that they could miss if they just learned it through intuition. But also I want them to have a lot of hands-on experience and have a lot of intuition so that if I'm bleeding out right, on the table, right. they also know to be checking for the other thing. You know, The same is even true in language. If I want somebody to write a press release, I want them to have studied and know the grammatical rules of the business version Absolutely. of the language that they're doing this in. But also they need to have the creativity and the everything else to make it engaging. Absolutely. And uh, it is, it's an interesting thing that um, uh, kind of related to that about the, uh, related to what you're saying about the context specificness of language as well, that you find uh, things like just in talking to polyglots that um, like one polyglot I know, for example, has an Italian girlfriend and speaks Italian fluently. Um, but can't read in Italian, and it, he actually didn't hasn't spoken French since he was at school, um, and finds it very difficult to socialise in French, but can read books 
in French because he did all of the exams and the grammar in French and, uh, and, and therefore it just has a much tighter understanding of the structure of the language. And this is the point, it's not, it, it's not wrong to learn grammar, it's not unhelpful, but it's not your shortest route to being able to chat with people mm-hmm. and to be able to make friends. And just as my children can speak perfectly in English now, but they can't write a press release very well. And uh, they've got a way to go. And they will, so, yeah, they, they need to learn a little bit more about the structure of the language to make them kind of bulletproof in that. Uh, and you know, they don't know grammar rules. Um, and, and it is a question of what you need to learn in order to be able to get to the goal that most of our users have, which is socializing in the language. And when that's your target, the way you lay out the experiences is very different to if mm-hmm. your target is um, you know, passing an exam or your target is writing a novel in the language. You know, they're, they're all require different ways of going about it. Right. Ultimately, we live in a social reality, the way that our mammalian brains and nervous systems are constructed. Yeah, indeed. So we're getting close to the end of our time here. So I want to ask just one more question, which is, what is something that you've learned about yourself through this startup journey that has most impacted the business? Well, um, referring back to what I said before, I'm going to start talking and see what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely, the extent of self-learning is enormous and it's incredibly frustrating to realize how little I little attention I paid to things that I kind of knew back when we founded the company. I kind of knew that I was like that, but I didn't realize the extent to which I was like that and the extent to which that was going to impact the direction of the company. And I think that the particular thing, so as, you, as my experience uh, uh, being a founder, which is entirely personal, um, it was that when the company was small and at the beginning stages, there, I, I was super intense, worked all hours um, and all weekends, expected everyone else to do the same. When things were obviously going badly and we should have given up, I, it literally never occurred to me. It just, it, it was just completely relentless and we just pushed and pushed and pushed until the damn thing worked. And as we then started to grow the team, I guess two things happened. One, I, I knew that I needed to change the way that I was behaving with the team, but I didn't know quite how to do that. And so I, 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 I wasn't able to give people the space that they needed to do the work at the same time as giving them clear direction on where the work should go. And what, what I mean by that is I found it hard when I've been working in the right in the details, I have all the details in my mind and I understand the problem from all sides and I've got total control of it. As you step back and allow somebody else to start dealing with it, what I've found is I, I need to distill out of all of the details, which are the important directional structural pieces, the kind of principles of what we're trying to build that I really care about hmm. and let communicate those and let people fill in the other parts for them for themselves and work out the other parts. And I found that I 
didn't consciously distinguish between the really big important principal pieces and the details and so i would just splurge everything at people <laughs> and yeah. expect them to understand everything that i was saying and it took a, a, a and i thought also because they didn't question me that they had understood it and the two things that were happening one i hadn't understood the extent to which i was holding a detailed complex map in my mind and expecting everyone else to understand it and i hadn't myself taken done the work to understand what are the principles and what are the details and making that separation out and the other thing was that i just wasn't noticing that when we were a tiny team we were all totally equal and pitching in and if people thought i was talking shit they told me i was talking shit but at some point people weren't working with me as closely didn't know me as well and they stopped telling me hmm. and then i'll give them a download of detail and they would nod and then they would go away and be like, I don't know what he was talking about. Actually, I actually don't know what they said, but whatever, they went away and would do something that wasn't in line, but we hadn't noticed yeah. that, that we weren't there. And I think, so I guess back to your, your question of what I learned about myself, I think just learning the extent to which I am not clear in explaining myself naturally and need to and that that comes from understanding things through understanding the whole gamut of the detail and just understand the whole project in detail is the way that I get comfortable with what's going on. And in order to actually explain that to somebody else, I need to distill that down to some basic principles that are the most important parts and then allow the other bits to, to be made for them. And I think it took me a long time to understand that people weren't understanding me. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a beautiful reflection. And I, I think it even relates to memory or to language learning too. You know, if you're throwing a lot of people's experience in learning languages that just so much is thrown at them and they're overwhelmed. And that could be the experience of an employee in a company when they have a founder who's just got this like whole vision in their head and they're trying to download it all the time. As you said, as the company grows beyond those people that are close enough to you to be a part of that vision, and then it grows beyond that. And there's people who don't have as much direct access to you, but the times that they do have access to you, they just feel overwhelmed. They could take that to mean that they are that they're incompetent and not able to understand. Uh, and then they might right. not ask questions because they might feel stupid. And then things go in a different direction than intended. Right, and and it also then the, the feedback that I give, if I'm not careful, and if I don't know which are the important principles that I want to communicate and which are detailed ideas that I don't feel very strongly about, those get taken as the same thing. And if someone has yeah. contact with the founder who just says, oh, but I don't like that bit, and like, why is that bit like that? That's taken at the same gravity as when I talk about something that is absolutely core strategy, mm -hmm. <laughs> because... I haven't told them that they're different. And and I think that that has, that's been something that we're, we're, I, I feel like I'm still learning. Yeah, I'm still learning that too. I, I have a lot more to learn in that particular area. There's a, there's always another order of magnitude improvement there, I think. Yeah, always. In, the, the, in clarity. Yeah, it's asymptotic. Well, Ben, thank you very much. This has been a really, really riveting conversation. Yeah, very, very good to chat. I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Take care.